This Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Is financially providing for a faithful ministry and caring for the needy within the church a responsibility that rests upon you as God's people? Absolutely. This principle, dear ones, is foundational to all that will be said today from God's holy word. In caring for the poor within the church, the church did not look to the civil government for help, but received voluntary free will offerings from its own members to care for the needy in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. You'll recall there that many brought their lands, their properties, their money together to be distributed to those who had need. They did so voluntarily. It was not something that was imposed upon them by way of a set amount, but they did willingly bring these lands to distribute for the needs of the poor. Likewise, in providing for the ministry of the Word, congregations were told by Christ's apostle, that it was their duty to supply the needs of their ministers so that they might devote their whole time to ministry. Consider with me what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Likewise, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, there the apostle admonishes the Galatians, let him that is taught in the word Communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. And then one other passage, First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, First Timothy, chapter five, verses seventeen and eighteen. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Dear ones, there will always be some who may seek to justify why they cannot give to the support of a faithful ministry and to the needy within the church. But after observing the example of the widow from our text this Lord's Day, all excuses as to why one cannot give as he has been blessed will have little weight before the Lord. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are as follows. First of all, Christ beholds the giving of the rich and the poor in Mark 12, verses 41 and 42. And secondly, Christ evaluates the giving of the rich and the poor in Mark 12, verses 43 and 44. Let us consider then the first main point 
together, dear ones. Christ beholds the giving of the rich and the poor. Look with me at the words that we find then in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 and 42. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. After the Lord's public discourse against the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, which we saw last Lord's Day in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, Jesus seats himself within the court of women where there were 13 boxes, collection boxes, that were shaped in, in, into the form of a trumpet, according to ancient Jewish sources like the Mishnah. Now, you may recall that the temple was rebuilt by Herod, and within that rebuilt temple by Herod, there were three different courts. First of all, there was the court of Gentiles, where the money changers had set up shop. All people, Jew or Gentile, were permitted within this court. However, the Gentiles were not permitted beyond that particular court to the other courts. Secondly, there was the court of women, where the treasury boxes were located in which monetary gifts were deposited. <clears throat> this was both for Jewish men and for Jewish women to gather to worship the Lord within these precincts. Women were not permitted beyond that particular point. The third court was the court of Israel, where the altar of burnt offering was located. And only Jewish men could enter this court. And beyond that point was the sanctuary itself, the temple proper itself, into which only the priests were permitted. There's no accident that the Lord focuses here his attention upon a poor widow that are in the verses before us. For he had just taught the people concerning the gross hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees who, according to Mark 12.40, devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. The Lord had just mentioned how hypocritical the gross hypocrisy of these people, these religious leaders who could rob and steal from widows and then, as it were, come and pray publicly long prayers for these same widows. <clears throat> now Christ contrasts the blatant hypocrisy of the Pharisees with the true religion of perhaps one of those very widows that they had robbed and stolen from. The Pharisees, according to the Lord, gave their alms in order to be seen by men, according to Matthew 6.2. But this poor widow gave, and although not seen by any man, was observed and commended by Jesus Christ for her sincere act of worship to the Lord. No pretense, 
No show, but simply a sincere act of love and devotion and gratitude to her Lord God. Dear ones, those of us who look at our gifts and graces as so insignificant and despise them for how small they are in the sight of men are taught here to look upon them as God looks upon those gifts and graces. Namely, as glorious gifts fit for the King of Kings when offered and used for His honor and for His praise. In fact, I would go so far as to say, dear ones, we dishonor the Lord greatly when we belittle and demean the gifts and the graces He has graciously given to us, no matter how insignificant we may think that they are. What would we think of our children? Dads, you offer to your child a special gift that you freely give to them, not something that you're told that you were going to give to them, but just something you bestow upon them. And they look at that and they go, yuck! And they go and bury it. Does that not demean not only the gift, but the giver of that gift? Does it not only dishonor the gift, but the giver of that gift? Yet, when we look upon the gifts and the graces that God has given to us, and we despise them, or we treat them as if they are so insignificant that we're ashamed of them, and we go and, as it were, bury them and hide them, not wanting anybody to see them, we do the same thing with that gift and to the giver of that gift, the Lord our God. If your gift, beloved, is relatively small in comparison to others, do not evaluate its significance in relation to the gifts of others. And do not go and bury it by despising it and speaking against it. Rather, as this poor widow did, use it. Out of a sense of thankfulness to God, use it to His glory and watch Him bless it in amazing ways to His own honor and to the blessing of many others. Our text states that Jesus, quote, beheld how the people cast money into the treasury in Mark 12:41. He beheld how some who were rich gave much. And He beheld how this poor widow gave very little. He saw it. But because He was the Son of God, because He was the Lord of glory, He could behold the way in which people gave in ways we cannot behold because His all-piercing eye could penetrate into the very hearts of men to discern the attitude with which they gave as well. He knew whether they gave in order to earn favor with God or the applause of men. He knew whether they gave begrudgingly or whether they gave out of an obedient and cheerful heart for all the many 
acts of kindness and mercy which the Lord had graciously bestowed upon them. I say in all seriousness, dear ones, the Lord still beholds those who give as they give into the treasury, the storehouse. He still beholds how they give. He scrutinizes the actions and the hearts of His people in their acts of giving, whether to the support of the ministry of the church or to the care of the needy within the church. And what does He observe in your giving or in my giving? Does He observe an attitude of how little can I get away with in my giving? Or does He observe an attitude how much can I give? and get away with in my giving. Does he see us give as if God were a debtor to us? Or as it truly is, that we are a debtor to God? Does he see not only a desire to be obedient in giving to his kingdom, but also a cheerful heart in parting with all, which truly belongs to him in the first place. After having watched how much the rich gave, the Lord's attention was focused upon this poor widow who gave two mites or a farthing, our text declares in Mark 12.42. This was quite a contrast to the amount given by the rich To the casual observer, what this woman gave would not draw any attention, except if someone were watching, how could she possibly give so little, perhaps? For the mite and the farthing were the two smallest coins uh, in Palestine at that time. According to the parable in Matthew 20, verse 2, the owner paid his hired laborers one denarius for a day's wage. And it is estimated that a farthing was one-sixty-fourth part of a denarius. Therefore, to draw an analogy, if the minimum wage today is about $6 an hour, and one works for eight hours, he has earned $48 before taxes. One sixty-fourth of that would be about 75 cents. This would, if we were to try to draw some comparison, this would be the equivalence of what this poor widow put into the treasury. Not exactly, as I said, a spectacle that would attract the attention of men, but it attracted the attention of the Lord. And why did it do so? Why did it attract His attention? Well, let's see. In order to do so, let us look at the second main point. Christ evaluates the giving of the rich and the poor. Follow along with me as I read from Mark 12, verses 43 and 44. 
And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury, for all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. The Lord considered this to be of such importance that he called his disciples together round about him in order that he might instruct them concerning the nature of true giving. And in Mark 12:43, the Lord first states his conclusion and in the following verse, Mark 12:44, he then gives the reason for his conclusion. His conclusion simply stated in Mark 12:43 is that this poor widow with her two mites or one farthing had put more into the treasury than all of those that he had observed, more than even the rich. Now, to say that she had given more than even the rich had given is to imply that the Lord was not evaluating her gift in proportion to mere monetary value. But rather, he was evaluating it in proportion to the means that each person had in which to give. That is, in proportion to that which each of the givers had in their possession to give. This is a similar principle that we find Paul mentioning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. When he says, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. What did she give in relation to what she had? What did they, all of the rest, give in relationship to what they had? It is on that basis that the Lord says she gave more than all the others. You see, dear ones, in the Lord's judgment, the true value of a gift is not measured according to the actual amount given, but according to the amount of self-sacrifice involved in voluntarily, willingly offering the gift unto the Lord for the use of in his kingdom. The real question to be asked then is this. What did it truly cost the giver? Not how much did he or she give in relationship to everyone else. But what did it cost them to give that gift? This the Lord makes clear that this is the way in which he's evaluating her having given more when he declares in Mark 12:44, For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. There was not much of a self-sacrifice involved at all on the part of 
the rich who had given. They may have given unto the Lord and desired to promote His kingdom. Is not necessarily condemning what the rich had given. There may have been those who were wealthy who did give with the right heart and the right attitude. But they still had an abundance left over. The point that the Lord is making is we do not evaluate the size of the gift based upon the monetary value, but what it costs the person to give that gift. She only had two mites. And that was all that she had that particular day. Now, she might have been able to, to secure or obtained more mites, more farthings the next day, but at that particular point in time, that was all that she had in her possession. And she gave it all. She might have saved one since these were two separate coins. There were two mites and you know a mite uh, being one coin. There were two of them. She might have saved one of them for herself and given half of her income, as it were, half of what she had. But again, the value of the gift was that she, she gave all that she had to the service of the Lord. You see, she had such a desire to give and believed that the Lord owned everything anyway that she gave believing He would supply what she needed tomorrow. This woman greatly exhibits two qualities. First of all, she greatly exhibits love. Great love to the Lord by giving all that she had. She reminds us of the woman in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, who came in upon Christ while he was dining and had the, the, the perfume, the ointment, and broke it and anointed the Lord. And the disciples were quite upset and saying, you know, Lord, why all this waste? And the Lord did not berate the woman because she had done it as unto him. She had done it in order to honor and to glorify the Lord because they discerned, they knew this woman to be a great sinner. They said, doesn't the Lord realize what kind of a woman this is? And Jesus says to them, gives to them a, a, a brief little parable and said, talks about one particular person being forgiven a certain debt by the king a large amount and another a smaller amount. And he asked the, these people, the hosts of the feast, who is going to love most? And they rightly responded, the one who was forgiven most. And the Lord turns it back upon them and says to them that she demonstrates how much she loves me by what she has given up, by what she has sacrificed here because she has been forgiven much. She loves much. And this was the attitude, no doubt, of this poor widow. She gave much because she realized how much she had been forgiven. And therefore, she loved much. Not only did she exhibit the quality of great love, but also the quality of great faith. In that, in giving up all that she had, 
she was casting herself into the hands of the Lord for tomorrow's food and whatever she needed. She was simply living one day at a time and trusting the Lord to provide for her. Here is great faith on the part of this woman believing that God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is certainly able and capable of providing for her in all of her needs. Again, this reminds us of another uh, biblical account in the Old Testament. When Elijah was sent by God to the town of Zarephath and he was to be cared for there by a widow whom he met along once he came into the city. And this particular widow was had a child and just enough meal to make a cake and they were going to eat it, she said, and die. That's all that they had. But God, through Elijah, says, give that particular meal to me. Make a cake for me and the Lord will provide for you in time to come. She obeyed in faith, trusted the Lord, and God continued to feel, fill that bowl so that it did not run dry of either meal or oil so that God provided her needs day after day after day after day because she was faithful, because she believed much that God would care for her, the God who created all things, the God who owns everything, even the wealth and the riches of the, of the rich and the wealthy. God owns it all that He could provide for her. Does God call each of us to give all that we have into the treasury of the church? No, uh, He does not here. We cannot say, based on this particular example, that God therefore warrants all of us to, to provide or to give to the church everything that we own. Because we do have particular needs that God also calls us to provide for in our families. These are particular examples that God gives to us in the Scriptures as to the kind of sacrifice that the Lord looks for in our lives. The affections, the desires that he, covet, that he so much wants to see in our lives. And he promises how in these examples he will provide for us. But there is also, dear ones, not only needs within the family. There are not only bodily needs within your family, but there are the needs in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we show our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the souls of men. We show our own spiritual hungering and thirsting for our own profit and blessing in our provision and in our giving to the support of the ministry as well. Calvin's commentary at this point, I think, is very helpful, very instructive in this particular text. He says this, In two ways, this doctrine is useful. 
For the poor who appear not to have the power of doing good are encouraged by our Lord not to hesitate to express their affection cheerfully out of their slender means. For if they consecrate themselves, their offering, which appears to be mean and worthless, will not be less valuable than if they had presented all the treasures of Croesus. On the other hand, those who possess greater abundance and who have received from God larger communications are reminded that it is not enough if in the amount of their beneficence or their gift they greatly surpass the poor and common people because it is of less value in the sight of God that a rich man out of a vast heap should bestow a moderate sum than that a, a, a poor man giving very little, should exhaust his store. We need to see from our text here that God calls all of his people, whether rich or poor, to use what they have and can to support the ministry and the needy within the church. It doesn't simply fall upon the shoulders of the rich to do so, but even upon the shoulders of the poor to do so within the means that they can, as indicated by this poor widow. They ought not to desire to be left out of the blessing that is involved and the privilege that is involved in supporting the ministry of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, since we believe that the Levitical requirement of the tithe, that is 10%, has been abolished with the abrogation of the Levitical system of the Old Testament, what principles should guide us in our giving to support the ministry within the church and the needy within the church? What principles should guide us? Let me give to you five principles as we close this Lord's Day. Five principles. First of all, give willingly and cheerfully rather than grudgingly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, we read, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Yes, it is a duty to financially support faithful ministers and to provide for the needy within the church. But dear ones, let our, our giving not stop with it being a mere obligation which we must fulfill. Let our love for Christ, let our love for His kingdom, let our love for the ordinances which the Lord has given to His church, let our love for our needy brethren so overflow the brim of our cup that we count it amongst the greatest privileges that we have to give of our substance to support these things. 
Dear ones, we must, if that is to be the case, that we are to give cheerfully, we must cultivate a heart of thankfulness. No one is going to give cheerfully and they will give very grudgingly if they're not thankful. If they do not have eyes to see that which God has blessed them with, if they go about murmuring and complaining about everything that they don't have, they're certainly not going to have a cheerful heart in giving what they do have to the work of the Lord. For those who only see it as a burden to give, they have not, dear ones, I would assert and submit, they have not come to understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have not come to be truly thankful for all that God has given to them through Christ Jesus. A second principle that we must use in our giving, give regularly and systematically rather than irregularly and sporadically, if at all possible. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Give as God gives to you. If the Lord gives you a weekly check, then take of that weekly check and give a portion of that to the Lord. If the Lord gives to you a bi-weekly or gives to you a monthly check, give accordingly. That's to give regularly and systematically to the Lord's work. You see, ministers... And the needy within the congregation continue to have needs every week, every month. And if we give merely sporadically, when we just have this twinge of, of uh, great appreciation, there may be many needs that, are, that we are allowing to go unmet amongst our ministers as well as amongst the poor within our midst. The great principle of do unto others as you would have others do unto you certainly applies here. A workman is worthy of his hire if he feeds you the good word of God. How much more you should take delight in sharing with him of your earthly resources in order to care for Him. The third principle that we should consider in this regard is give bountifully rather than sparingly. Again, consider what the Lord says through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9.6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully 
shall reap also bountifully. As I said earlier, don't give with the attitude, how little can I get away with in my giving? Rather have the attitude, how much can I get away with in my giving? Rather pray for the affection that God would give you a greater liberality in your giving than you presently have. That God would bless you with more, that you might be able to distribute more. Dear ones, our giving reflects, I believe, very strongly upon how highly we prize the ordinances of Jesus Christ. How highly do you esteem the preaching of God's Word? Not only for yourself, but for others. Do you desire that others within our church have the same privilege that you have in hearing the Word of God faithfully preached each week? Then God grant you the grace to give to such an abundance that you not only can support the minister here, but you have enough to be able to share in supporting those ministers who may not have the means and the ability to be supported presently. For to have ordained ministers who cannot devote their full time to ministry because there is not financial support available is in effect, dear ones, to demonstrate how we devalue and dishonor the ministry of the Word and how we devalue and dishonor, regardless of our profession, the covenanted reformation. How can we pray that God will bless us with more ministers, as we ought to be praying, if we are not presently giving in such a way to support the ministers that we do have? God isn't going to hear dear ones, that prayer that we receive more ministers until we can take care of the ministers that we do have. Fourthly, never give financially believing that God thereby becomes a debtor to you. To give with the mindset that God now owes us is to place ourselves, dear ones, under the covenant of works where what we receive from the Lord is given on the basis of our own righteousness and our own obedience rather than on the basis of His free grace and mercy. The Lord promises in His grace to provide for our needs. But giving to the Lord's work, dear ones, is not an earthly investment program in which we can expect 100% interest on our money, contrary to the heresy of many TV evangelists. 
The investment, dear ones, is of a spiritual nature in which the Lord will promote His kingdom here upon the earth in bringing many souls to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who will live forever with Him in heaven and in caring for those who have physical needs of some kind, the poor, the afflicted. When we give to the ministry of the church, we lay up riches, Jesus tells us, in heaven. We're not building some kind of a bank or an investment program here upon the earth. We expect our reward not here upon the earth, but from the Lord in heaven who will declare, enter into my kingdom. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lastly, always give believing you are a debtor to the Lord. Let that always be upon your mind as you give to the Lord. You are the debtor. All that we have, dear ones, belongs to Him already. Everything you own is God's. It doesn't belong to you. All the earth and all that it contains, the psalm says, is the Lord's. So that... When we give, we do not give really what is ours, but what is the Lord's anyway. That which truly belongs to Him anyway. We are not ultimately the owner of our own finances, but rather God's steward or manager of His finances. We are to give, beloved, out of a sense of infiniteness and infinite indebtedness to Christ who gave His life for us that we might enjoy the riches of His eternal life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, The Apostle summing up a a chapter that deals with the matter of giving says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. See, it's not we who ought to view that God becomes a debtor to us, but rather that we are as I said, debtors to the Lord in the way that we give. That ought to be our attitude. Thus, we ought to be like the woman who broke the bottle of ointment and showed her love unto the Lord because she was forgiven much. She gave much. That ought to be our attitude, dear ones, as we give. What is your attitude, beloved? Does your giving reflect how little you believe you've been forgiven? Or how much you believe you've been forgiven? 
thus financially supporting the ministry of the word and the needy within the church is not the duty of a few. It is not the duty of only the rich. Yea, it is the duty and even more so the privilege of all who benefit from the preaching of God's word to support the ministry of the word of Christ. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, which is ever faithful and true, which convicts us, Lord, by Thy Spirit of our laziness, of our procrastination, of our negligence in all of our duties. O Lord, our God, we confess that we have grown negligent in this duty. And we would ask our Father that Thou would give to us renewed faith, renewed love, renewed obedience, that we would, Lord, willingly and cheerfully give to the support of the ministry and the needy within our church. We pray, Father, that Thou would raise up a mighty army, not only of those Lord, who have much, but even a mighty army of those who have little, but give, Lord, what they do have to the glory of Christ, who give in faithfulness, who give to see the kingdom of God go forward. We pray, Father, that Thou would hear our prayer this day, and that in so doing, Thou would prosper our ministry. Thou would provide for the ministers we have and add, Lord God, more ministers to the profit of thy church. We ask these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.